Well, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 21, I'm sorry, verses 27 through 31. I'm so used to saying 21 because we've been in that passage so long. You're right, we're turning to another passage where we've spent the the last five plus Sundays, and if you're disappointed, don't worry, the the shadow of these few verses uh, are cast over the rest of the book. Um, in one sense, it's hard to leave uh, a great passage. Somebody said last Sunday, you know, don't apologize for how long we've been in Romans uh, 21 through 26. Uh, we could stay there another five or six weeks as far as I'm concerned. So in one sense, it's, it is hard to leave a passage that just is so potent, talking about the power of, of Christ and what God has done for us in salvation. That is, until we remember that we're just in chapter 3 and we have the rest of the book of Romans uh, before us. And the upcoming scenery is just as lush. Might not be packaged as, uh, as tight as verses 21 through 26, but, um, but it is amazing. Yeah, those six verses that, that we just came out of, it... If they contain the synopsis of the Christian faith, then what comes next? Uh, these next 12 chapters, they unfold uh, that gospel even in more detail. And as believers, we want to we soak up every, every drop and understand every line. Romans 3.21 turned the corner from condemnation. After almost three chapters about our sin... Paul declares to us that we have a glorious hope. And and in verse 21 of chapter 3, he said, But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And he he brings this back to his theme that that he starts this book with. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For in the the gospel, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. Just like the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, the the righteousness of God is revealed in the, in the gospel. And, and he explains that gospel to us. It's a, it's a righteousness that's revealed in the, realized in the person of Christ. It's been promised in the Old Testament. It's gained by faith alone. It's available to all. It provides complete justification. It's freely granted by His grace, but at a great cost to God. And that's what we saw last week. Paul says the means by which God accomplishes justification for sinners. We are are just as great as sinners today in and of ourselves as we were the the moment that we called upon Christ in in our flesh. And God justifies people like that. He declares people like that are not guilty. And he, he does that, the means by which he's able to do that. Call us righteous even though we're not is through the the delivery method of redemption and propitiation, which is brought by an immeasurable cost to to God, the death of His Son, brutal death on, on the cross. In redemption, Christ purchases us from the slave market of sin, and in an act of propitiation, He absorbs God's holy wrath by by being the satisfying sacrifice Himself. And And God does it that particular way we learned last time so that He can demonstrate that He's just. He's he's just over the sins that were committed prior to Christ because He didn't immediately annihilate those people and cast them into hell. He he was patient and long-suffering. He he, he practiced forbearance. He he withheld knowing that Christ would come and absorb that wrath and and he also demonstrates that he's righteous toward, toward our current sins uh, in, the, in the new era, during the new covenant. So he is just as he justifies the, the one who has faith in Jesus alone. And that, that's why he did it, by the cross. That's why the cross is necessary. God doesn't just overlook our sin or whisk it away. He takes it out of the way by paying for it in a most horrifying way through the through the cross of, of Christ. That's what verses 21 and through 26 just laid out for us. That's what we're coming out of. But now, in verses 27 through 31, Paul draws some conclusions in light of that gospel. They're implications, if you will. They say a good sermon doesn't just tell you what the text says. It, 
it gives you the implications of it. It, it, it applies it. it. It says, so what? Well, here's the, the so what of the gospel that, that Paul gives here. There, verse 27 through 31 are the implications of a gospel by grace alone through faith alone. If God saves by faith alone, what, what's the implication of that? What, what's the applications that, that, come, that, 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 that come out of, of people coming to God by faith? What's the impact of, of this one way of salvation? And so at the end of chapter 3, Paul lays out the happy repercussions of the gospel. In chapter 4, he's going to illustrate that, go into detail, talking about, about the life of Abraham. It's always been by faith alone, and Abraham will be our example. That's what's coming next. But, but what does this God-wrought righteousness mean practically? Well, Paul says it means that there's no boasting before God. It means that we're all on equal footing before God if we come that way. And it also means that the law, which issues forth from God Himself, His holiness expressed in the law is, is fully upheld through faith alone. It's not diminished in any way. The law is not done away with in the sense that it, it, it's meaningless. Those are the three common arguments against God's way of salvation that Paul has heard many times. You, you, you recall that, that Paul has been here before. He shared the gospel before. And so he addresses this, these common arguments in, in five questions. And, and he asks the question, and then he answers them himself. You ever talk to yourself? Well, Paul's not talking to himself here, but he, but he asks a question that he wants you to, to know the answer to, and then he answers it. He, he asks it so he can answer it. And, and these questions are laid out in this hypothetical argument, like he's, like he's arguing with, with someone. And there are three points that, that he's making here. The, the first one's in verse 27. Let me show you how it's laid out, and then we'll, we'll explain it. In verse 27, where is boasting? Right out of the gospel, the first question is, where is boasting? I mean, since righteousness is based on faith alone and what God accomplishes through Christ, there is a no boasting sign hanging in heaven. There is silence from the saints when they're asked who got here on their own. And there's, there's, no, there's no roosters in heaven, Paul's saying. The second is found in verse 29. Look at verse 29. Here's his second point. Or, uh, notice it's a, it's a new thought. Or is God the God of the Jews only? That's the question. And so Paul says, the very nature of God demands that Jews and Gentiles are justified the same way. There is one God and He saves all the same way. He saves all by faith alone. There's not... One path for Jews and one path for Gentiles. The gospel is not God sitting at the top of a mountain, as I heard a commentator say this past week, and, and, and they're just people trying to climb up to God in many different ways. It just depends on which side of the mountain you start from, whether, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or a Hindu or a Muslim or whatever else. That's not the gospel. And the third one is in verse 31. Paul draws a conclusion, a single conclusion here. He says... Do we then nullify the, the law? In, in Greek, that's the word for therefore. It's a, it's a conclusion. At, the conclusion is faith does not undo the law. This faith alone does not undo the law. It actually upholds the law. And We'll talk about what Paul means by that in a minute. And, and as I said, Paul knows all of these arguments well because he's come upon them many times as he preached the gospel, this very same gospel in many synagogues. You remember Paul has already been on three missionary journeys, and his normal pattern is he goes into a town, he finds his local Baptist church or his Jewish synagogue in Paul's day, and he goes in there and he preaches the gospel to them. He reasons with them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was crucified and that they need to place their faith in him. Paul's an experienced soul winner. And he's laid out a righteousness that comes by faith alone or sola fide. And there has always been specific pushback. And that pushback has always come from religious people. You probably experienced the same. I mean, if you share the gospel at all, 
they're common answers that people give you whenever you share the gospel. I mean, you can, it's, it's just predictable. I mean, after you do it for a period of time, it's almost, it's almost laughable. There are these similar arguments, just like the excuse for not needing the gospel to begin with. I mean, I'm a pretty good guy. I just drink a beer every now and then. I try to do my best. Besides, the church is full of, finish it, hypocrites, right? I mean, it's just, it's just like clockwork. You know exactly what people are, are going to say. And every time they're doing that, they're just trying to shove the gospel away, shove the, the spotlight away that God's trying to put on their own heart. So what if the church is full of hypocrites? What about you? What, what are, what are you going to do with God? You're a sinner. You can almost anticipate what they'll say because human beings are alike. Well, there are also common arguments that religious people make against the gospel, against grace, or in this case, Paul boils it down to against faith alone. That faith, the gospel is received by, by faith. There are attempts to sidestep God's humbling plan of salvation. They're, they're like spike strips thrown out in front of the gospel's car, speed bumps erected by the self-righteous to slow down faith alone. Well, okay, it's faith, but it can't be faith alone. Let me just let me pump the brakes on faith. The predominant temptation of religious people is pride. Because deep down, people want to boast. You're no different. They don't think they need the gospel because God looks upon them more favorably because of their effort in some way. I know God's way better. I, I keep God's law greater. Therefore, I need grace less. We, we really blew that out in chapter 2 where Paul, Paul talks about this. And this religious pride then, he brings it back up. This religious pride or boasting is typically then coupled with two accusations. They're hurled in the, at the, in the direction of, of salvation. When, when somebody is confronted with a, when a moral person, a religious person trusting in their morality is confronted with faith alone, they're, the pride, pride is what's operating in the background and there are two accusations that they typically have. The first one is that God is already partial toward religious people, so grace can't be offered to, to people who are not like them. I mean, if, if I'm right with God because of what I do or because of how I know God or because of how I come to God, then, then grace can't be offered to anybody other than somebody like me, somebody doing something like, like I'm doing. It's, that's the first accusation. And, and the second one is that besides God must uphold His law. I mean, God must fulfill what, what He's commanded. I mean, why would He give these commands if we weren't supposed to keep them? And so, so it can't be all by faith without some obeying mixed in? As I said, Paul's already dealt with this, uh, this twice, once in chapter 2. It's just a way, way of reminder. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Remember, Paul's talking to the, the religious man. He's condemning the religious man. Chapter 1, he condemns the, the, the pagan. But do you suppose this, chapter 2, the religious man, do you suppose this, old, old man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and you do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance, of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Remember, Paul was applying God's standards there to religious people, people who knew right, they knew enough to judge, people who had the right revelation, they have the law, people who had the right worship, they were worshiping God rather than the idols of chapter 1, people who have right, had right rip, uh, rituals, they were circumcised, and people who had the right position, they were God's chosen people, Jewish people. And his whole point there was you need the gospel as a religious person, you're not in any better position than the pagan of chapter 1 when it comes to judgment. The second was in the passage that we just finished in verses uh, 21 through 26. When Paul gives this explicit description of the gospel. He, I mean, that removes pride and it just jettisons these two accusations because salvation comes by grace alone. All have sinned and they all fall, we all fall short of the glory of God. There's no way to get there. And so it must come through faith without any mixture of works and and yet here is Paul back again 
after chapter 2 and after the gospel, addressing the same argument, which tells you how easily tempted we are toward religious pride. I mean, deep down, as human beings, we want to help God, even if it's a little bit. We want to put a little something in Salvation's bank account. We, we want to take our dirty little watercolor brush and sign the Mona Lisa, or at least put one little brush stroke there. I mean, we're like the child who, who's being wheeled around in Walmart in the shopping cart with mom getting her list, and, and they, they go uh, down the snack aisle and they grab some pudding cups and they throw it, in the, throw it in the buggy, and then they claim that they helped mom with shopping today. When she was the one that drove them to the store and pushed the cart around and paid for all the items, including the pudding. We, we want to boast at, at how we, we, we added to her accomplishment. And that's what religious people do with God. And so Paul says salvation by faith alone provides three outcomes in verses 27 through 31 that obliterate all these objections to its gracious reach. Three implications of the gospel by faith. In the gospels, there's no boasting before God because no works can be added. There's no bifurcating, no separating of God's plan of salvation because there's one God and there's no harm done to the law because faith establishes the, the law. We'll call it three implications of the gospel by, by faith alone. Three implications of the gospel by faith alone. There is no boasting with the gospel. There is no bias with God, and there is no belittling of the law. No boasting, no bias, and no belittling. Look, look if you would, at the, the first one that is in verses 27 through 28. If you don't get these, you'll get them as we go through. Boasting is excluded by faith alone, because it is by the principle of faith and because it is unrelated completely, totally, to your effort. Look if you would at verse 27. He says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart, completely absent from the works of the law. What would you consider to be the worst sin person could ever commit? What's the worst sin that a person could ever commit? Would you say murder? Well, some people might be tempted with that answer because when you take somebody's life, you, they, they can never get it back. So, so it's, it's a done deal. It's fixed, at least on this side of, uh, of eternity. I mean, what about harming a child? You say the worst sin has to do with harming children. We've surely had our fill of that example this past week. and It would surely rank up there at the top. In fact, Jesus even says in Luke 17 too that anyone mistreating the vulnerable, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and cast in the sea than to face God if you have violated a child or someone vulnerable, vulnerable in their faith or... But what if I told you that the biblical answer for the worst sin is pride? Would that surprise you? The worst sin that you could ever commit is pride. Would that surprise you? If it does, it might be because you're tempted to think that of pride as an individual sin. Pride is something that, that's in me and doesn't really affect other, other people. And we, we naturally think of sins, we rank them, but by how they harm others. We, we, we rank the ones that harm others even higher than sins that offend God, who, who's, the, who's the creator. But Scripture says that pride is the original sin, and, and that's where all other sin comes from. Therefore, it's the greatest of all sin. It's the, the fountainhead of, of sin. James Montgomery Boyce said pride was the very first sin, and, and he lays out a strong case for it. In Isaiah 14, 13, Quoting Satan, he says, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. There it is. 
pride that led Satan to fall, to want to ascend above God. But the Bible says he was actually brought down to, to the grave. What goes up must come down. And verse 15 says, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the grave, to the recesses of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you, and they will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man that made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms? Really? In comparison to God, the greatest created being, Satan himself is, we're going to wag our heads or shake our heads thinking, why did we ever fear something like this? Pride was the sin that Eve committed uh, when she wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. And she didn't rise up to become like God, did she? Instead, she became like Satan in her perverted and fallen knowledge. Uh, Pride was the sin of Adam who could not abide even the slightest restriction on his quest for complete autonomy, Boyce said. He could not stand God's law. Adam wanted to be a law unto himself, so he sinned and brought the entire human race into misery. And there is no place pride is more prevalent or more hideous than when it's connected with being right with God. Boyce again said that is because religion is the ultimate setting for the very worst expression of pride. For in it, in religion alone, that's where we can claim that God, not mere human beings, set His approval on us as superior to others. I mean, pride relates, as it relates to God, demands that He declare that we are superior to to other people. We, we are more righteous than others because we have kept His standards better. We are, we are closer to God than others because we are more, uh, we walk more in, intimately with Him. We're smarter than others, especially those pagans or atheists or evolutionists that, that don't even believe in God. We, even that we are more humble than others because we think so much more of God than, than everyone else. It's so wicked because the essential nature of pride that comes out in boasting is competitive. It's essentially competitive. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. I think this is super helpful. Lewis said, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than the next man. I mean, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good looking, then there would be nothing to be proud of. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. That's pride. And pride is the motive behind all of those things. And pride is the reason that people reject faith alone. Is the basis for salvation. Look at what Paul says in verse 27. Where then is boasted? Now, where then is boasting? It is excluded. So this first question, the hypothetical argument, Paul says, where then is self-congratulating? Based upon what I just got done saying to you in verses 21 through 26, where's the self-congratulations? Is there any oxygen to fill your lungs now? And the quick answer is no, it's excluded. Literally, it's shut out once for all. Like hanging a no fishing sign over the gospel's lake, Paul tells, tells us that God's plan does not allow for boasting. In light of this gospel, which justifies sinful man by faith exclusively, without any mixture uh, uh, or human effort or work, there is no oxygen for the lungs of boasting. I mean, how can pride even find a sliver of wood to burn? If you understand what he just got done saying, verses 21 through 26. I mean, Paul says it it can't. I mean, if works are completely ruled out because God justifies us on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone, then, then we have no roost to climb on, to crow before God. Faith achieves nothing on its own. It, it, it comes empty-handed. It, it receives simply what God brings to us. 
Faith trusts in what God gives, so, so we can claim no credit since it, it doesn't accomplish anything, but actually trust and believe is in what someone else accomplished for us. I mean, where's boasting in that? Schreiner said that the, even the verb points to this truth. It says it's been excluded, it's been ruled out. It's, the word means to put outside, like put outside the door, thrown out, never to come back in. Boasting is put out the door because our standing with God is based on the sacrifice of Christ, not human works. And boasting here means exactly what, what you would think. It means to take glory in something. Here, your own efforts, yourself in some way. And boasting is a sin that flows from, from the roots of pride. And, and the roots of this weed is in every one of our hearts. And Paul's aiming at religious people here. And you can tell that by his contrast with law and faith. Look at verse 27. Look at this next question. By, by what kind of law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. He, he's using religious language. By what kind of law? And he talks about a law of faith. And so he continues with two more questions here to explain why boasting is ruled out. He, he says it's excluded based upon the principle of faith. And he uses this play on words between the Old and the New Covenant. He references the Old Covenant and the New Covenant using the word law. But when he does that, he, he tells us what he means. It's a principle, the, the law of faith. He's, he's contrasting the law of works, the, the way of works, and the, the law of faith, the principle of works versus the principle of, uh, of faith. Doug Moose said a, a good paraphrase is, what rule or system of demands excludes boasting? Does a ruler system based on law, does that exclude boasting? No, it actually promotes boasting. Because you might not have kept all of the Ten Commandments, but you kept more than the next guy. Or you kept at least one or, or part of one that, that you can then lay that before God's feet. So what system excludes boasting? How can Paul say that boasting is completely excluded in verse 27? Under what principle is it excluded? He says it's through the principle of faith, not the principle of law-keeping. I mean, that's the idea. I mean, clearly the answer is the, the principle of faith alone is how it's excluded, which is the basis of the new covenant, which is what he just got done saying. I mean, there are two kinds of responses to God. There, there's one is trusting faith, and the other is, is, is stretching work. You're, you're reaching there yourself. One has ground for, for credit only with God, and the other aims to gain accolades for, from your own personal effort. Grace from God or pride from accomplishments. Now look at verse 28, because Paul further explains what, what he means. I mean, he's explicit here. There's no way to, to miss this sola fide, or faith alone. Verse 28. For, here's the explanation, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If you don't understand my analogy of, of the, the, the system of faith or the system of works, let me be explicit. And notice it, it says, we, and it begins with the word for. We maintain. Paul's not talking about a personal belief. He, his secondary theme for this whole book is a, is a common doctrine. The main theme is the righteousness of God that, that comes to us in the gospel, but the secondary theme is the way in which it comes. The secondary theme of Romans is faith alone. The righteousness of God comes to us through faith alone. And this little word for ex, of verse 28 explains what he means in verse 27. The, the reason boasting is excluded is that righteousness is by faith, apart from the works of the law. And once you realize that, once you realize that God's righteousness comes to people separately from the law, then there can be no basis for pride because we bring nothing to the table. No works whatsoever, whatever their source or motivation, can play any part in a sinner being right with God. God justifies us based on our believing, our helpless trust in what God has done in Jesus and not any other thing. And if you believe that, you listening? If you believe that, then humility should be just as natural to you as pride is for the religious person. I mean, you realize how antithetical it is for a Christian to be proud? I, I mean, 
humility ought to be as natural to you as breathing, just as natural as sin once was before. It doesn't mean you might not struggle with pride, but what, what should naturally come from your heart if you actually understand the gospel is not chafing at grace, but embracing it. I mean, who am I that, that, that I could get anything from God? Just like pride is natural to the religious person. C.S. Lewis, again, found him super helpful, this concept of pride. He said, how is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say that they believe in God and appear to be very religious? You ever met somebody like that? I believe in God and they appear very religious, very fastidious in their law keeping and then whatever they do. They wear a suit to church every single Sunday. They, do their, they read through their Bible three times a year, and, and, and they're, they're happy to tell you about that. I mean, how is that possible? The people that are eaten up with that pride, uh, Lewis says, I'm afraid it means that they're worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in His presence. Oh, I'm nothing. I mean, it's only the Lord. All glory to God but are really all the time imagining how He approves of them and thinks of them better than ordinary people. It's in the back of their mind. Lewis said that that is they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to Him to get a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow man. And here's the real punchline. Lewis said whether we Whenever we find our religious life is making us feel that, that we're better than somebody else, I think we can be sure that we are being acted on not by God but by the devil. Because the real test, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you forget about yourself altogether. How is it that we can forget about ourselves? I mean, people who by their very nature think about ourselves constantly. I mean, the moment that you opened your eyes this morning, you were thinking about yourself. You were thinking about how you felt. You were thinking about what your day had. You you were thinking about how you looked when you got in the mirror. You were thinking about how the kids aggravated you on the way to church. You were thinking about how I don't like that music. You were thinking about, is he ever going to shut up this morning so I can go eat lunch, right? I mean, you're constantly thinking about yourself. How is it that you can forget about yourself? Especially when it comes before God. Paul says the answer is gripping a salvation by faith alone so that all of our focus is upon the captain of our salvation and if our eyes are on him and his work, then as we sing, the things of earth will go, grow strangely dim, including yourself and your own work. You know how practically to get your eyes off of yourself? Put them on Christ and if that doesn't work, serve somebody else intentionally, actively humble yourself and focus on the needs of others. But that's not all it does for us. Salvation by faith alone also provides level ground at heaven's gate. Here's the second one. Bias is eliminated by God's nature. The second implication, Paul says, of the gospel by faith alone is bias is eliminated by God's nature. He says there is only one God and there is... Therefore, only one way that he saves. Look if you would at verse 29. Or is God, and he'll define that as the one God, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since, indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. He's the only God, the one true and living God. And notice the little word or introduces a new argument. And the new argument is that the fact that there is one God who is the same means that He deals with people the same way in salvation. And that fact demands a salvation by faith alone for both Jew and Gentile. Not law for Jew and faith for Gentile. And not only that, I mean, think of the implication of what He's saying here. 
Think of what's hiding in the background. These men, again, religious people, in this case Jewish people, what's hiding in the background is if this is not true, then Jews are the only people getting saved, which is what religious people believed. Believe. We're the only ones getting in, the people who do it like we do it. And Paul says if that's not true, that there's only one God and, and only faith alone, then only Jews can be saved because they're the only ones that got God's law. They're the only ones that received God's law. They're the only ones that care about God's law. And so Paul asks, is, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Hey, you Jews that recite the Shema every morning, hear, O Israel, there's, there's one Lord, there's one God. Is that God not the God of the Gentiles also? And he answers, of course he is. He's the creator of all. I mean, Paul is attacking false beliefs of both Jews and Gentiles in this verse. One commentator said, The Jews believe in one God, but not salvation for the Gentiles. And the Gentiles believed in salvation for everyone, but not in one God. And Paul says, you both have it wrong. Because there's only one God, there's only one way of salvation. And that way of salvation is the gospel I just gave to you, which is faith alone. In Christ alone. I mean, you realize that the Jews got up every morning and recited the Shema, as I said, about the truth that there is only one true and living God. But then Jewish tradition added something else. It, it, it thanked God that they were not Gentiles because the Lord loves Israel above all the nations of the earth. Now, there's a little aspect of that that's true, right? Israel was God's chosen nation. And they took that and they took it too far. I mean, if justification is by works of the law, then only those in the law can be justified. And we are in the law. And then God becomes the God of the Jews only, which is what many people believe. That's what even Paul believed himself. Why do you think Paul's running around jerking Christians out of their homes and dragging them to Jerusalem because that's what he believed. These are, these are heretics. They're attacking the one true way of salvation. That was before Jesus used the pavement of the road to Damascus to knock the pride out of him. I mean, in Judaism of Paul's day, people clearly believed that God was the creator of all, but they also believed that he had a saving relationship only with the, the people who kept his law. Just like religious people today think that God is God of all, but, but He only has a saving relationship with those who, who keep our, our little religious jingles. And you get there the same way if you come through that system, their system. And in the Jewish case, it was the Torah. But Paul says here, if God is truly God over all, then, then that one God has no bias. And a Gentile, on the other hand, didn't believe in such things. He, he never met a God that he didn't like. The one God? Who cares about one God? I mean, the pagans of old are very much like the Hindus today. They, the, 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 they're, they're more gods than there are people. And those gods allowed all kinds of practices and all, way, all kinds of paths of salvation, like the, the climbing the mountain example or the many streams that run into the one great river. And Paul says there is one great God, not many who is over all and the source of all good, and this God provides grace to all, but only through His Son. That's it. It's the only way you're getting there. Because all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. So there's one provision for God to be able to declare you right with Him, and that is if that sin has been paid for through His Son. You ever think about this? When we, when we get to heaven, we may be surprised by some people that we'll see there. <laughs> I mean, there will be people who don't fit into our little religious system who have fully trusted Christ, mind you. We're not saying there's a universal salvation. Jesus said, no man comes unto the Father but by me. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. But there may be people with a fainter faith than, than yours, a faith in Jesus nonetheless, and you may be surprised to see them there. We also might be surprised by some people who are not there. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? Many will call unto me, Lord, Lord. There may be some preachers that you expect to see there 
that are not there. People who seem to do mighty things for God, but, but they'll be absent because they, they did it out of boasting, out of vain glory. They, they did it by the flesh and not out of faith. But your main concern ought to be if people will be surprised whenever they see you there, right? That's what you ought to be mainly concerned about this morning. I mean, if you make it to heaven, it's because you had faith in Jesus. But if you're there and people are surprised to see you, it's because your faith is made suspect by your life. Your, your, your living doesn't match your profession. You fly far away from the flame. You, you like the, the worship, a thankful life ought to produce. The, your level of interest is a, is a tacit endorsement to Jesus. Your effort is mediocre. Your pursuit of Jesus is passing. You're, you're happy to just float by. You're happy to just skim in. I mean, your passion for Christ, if, if people are surprised to see you in heaven, nobody should be surprised to see you in heaven. They ought to know your faith and that your life ought to back it up. And if they're surprised, it's because your passion for Christ is like a, is like a jailhouse tattoo that, that you got when you walked the aisle years ago. It was bright and bold then, but now the ink is weak and it's faded and you can barely see it. It didn't transform your life. And if that's you, you ought to repent. Because either Jesus is worthy of living for or He's not. And if he's not, what in the world are you doing here this morning? Go sleep in, go play golf, go do something else. I mean, that's logical. But if there is one true and living God, there is. There's one way of salvation, which is only through the door that he has provided in Jesus Christ, then, then it's right to be here, and it's right to hear his word, and it's right to pursue him, and it's right to live for him. And his gospel enfolds all people. That's what Paul is saying here, because he is God of all people. Look, if you would, at verse 30. Since God indeed, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. This is a relative clause. Uh, Here's the basis of faith. This one God has only one way of salvation. He'll justify everyone the same way. Notice Paul calls them not Jew and Gentile, but the circumcision and the uncircumcision. The emphasis is on their faith to take it off of their foreskin. I mean, that's how Paul says that God recognizes people. Is faith in my son present. And the basis that God will use to mark out his people, regardless of whether Jew and Gentile, is not the law but by faith. You realize how encouraging this is? I mean, this is so encouraging. Paul says that you have the answer for all people of all times in all cultures. Did you wring your hands sometimes and say, oh, well, I don't even know how to witness. I mean, I'm 65. I don't know how to witness to a, a millennial. Or you're a millennial and you say, I, I don't know how to witness to somebody that's, that's in Europe or, or in Nepal or wherever it might be. Paul says regardless of where they live or... or, or or how the times change, the answer for the older, elite-minded European or the young millennial progressive in Seattle, the, the answer to, for the man in the jungle or the common farmer of the Midwest, the answer is there is one God, the creator of all, and He justifies sinners like you on the basis of faith in His Son. I mean, that's it. That's all you need to know. That's, the, that's what you share with them. And faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. But that begs another answer, another question Paul answers next. So what was the law then? I mean, if it's by faith and not by law, I mean, was the, what was the law? What was it for? I mean, was it just some big joke that God played on the Jewish people? <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me say you don't eat shrimp and pork and whatever else. Is that what he's doing? Is it something that we as Gentiles don't have to even pay attention to today? Well, look at verse 31. Here's the third and... Final implication. Paul says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The third implication of 
of a gospel by faith alone is belittling of the law is exempted. It's exempted because of Christ's fulfillment. It's, it's, faith alone is confirmed by the law. It's fulfilled through Christ. It's accomplished by the Spirit. I mean, verse 31, Paul wraps up his, his argument here by answering if the gospel is anti-law. And he answers, no way. The gospel is not antinomian, anti-law. John Murray says, Paul was well aware of the danger of the antinomian inference from the doctrines of grace. And he anticipates the objection and answers it briefly. He's going to go into way more detail in chapter 6 and chapter 8. But he answers the question, if justification comes through faith, does that abolish the law? Does it nullify it? Does it make it unimportant? Literally, does it invalidate the law? And Paul answers, of course not. Rather, it confirms it. He uses his strong denial here. May it never be. He'll he'll use that many times in the book of Romans. Paul says faith is not inconsistent with the law. Faith upholds the law. It's thoroughly consistent with it. In in fact, the law supports and confirms the way of faith. Faith and law go together. In chapter 4, he's going to show the, the... Way of salvation has always been by faith through Abraham. But Paul just got done saying in verse 21 that the law and the prophets all point to Christ. He even opened the letter with this truth in verse 2, the second verse of, of Romans. He says the gospel was something God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's in the Old Testament. Law. So Paul is clearly not saying that faith nullifies the law. He's saying the opposite. It upholds the laws. But the question is how? How does coming to God by faith alone uphold the law? How does it make it stand? How does it establish? How is it established by, by faith alone? Well, turn over to Romans 8, 3 through 4, and we will we'll end there. Because remember, Paul's still in his introduction, and he is going to blow out these topics and give greater detail as he moves through the letter. And here's where he explains. I think he explains what he means right here at the end of chapter 3. Romans 8. Now look at verse 3 through 4. Well, I mean, let's just pick up verse 1 because it's such a beloved text. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what justification brings. Uh, No condemnation right now. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Watch this. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that, here's the the result so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, those who are are in the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Your mind before salvation was hostile toward the Lord. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot keep God's law. They have no desire to do that. Verse 9. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You know what that says? It says that by Christ's coming and His cross, He fulfilled God's law, the demands of that, that law. He did for us what we can never do for ourselves because we're at enmity toward God, because we do naturally think about ourselves, because of that original sin of pride is still resident in our heart. He did for us what we can never do in relation to God's law because our very natures are contrary to it, our minds are set on the on the flesh, which is death. But beyond that, it says because we've come to Christ, we not only have a a new desire, He gives us a new desire, but He gives us a new empowerment. We possess the Spirit now. 
So faith in Christ doesn't lead to shunning of the law of God. In fact, it provides for the first time the complete fulfillment of God's demands because they're now fulfilled in Christ. And, and because Christ has fulfilled those demands, then, and we have His Spirit, then we're set free to serve the Lord, and even as it relates to the law. We now have a new heart that desires to do what God wants, and we have a new ability of the Spirit to carry it out. And we do that without any condemnation hanging over ourselves. Our conscience has been cleared of dead works to serve the living God. That's what a gospel by faith alone brings. And the law foreshadows that promise. Look at um, chapter 4, verse 1. Just tip your toe in the water of where we're going. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, was found? For if Abraham was justified, work, justified by works, as he has something to boast about, it was before God. There's our same theme. Abraham was justified by, faith, uh, justified by faith, looking into that promise that was to come. We're justified by faith, trusting in the promise that has come. The promise that Jesus has fulfilled all of the law's demands and now, and now the condemnation has been taken out of the way. And Abraham had to wait by faith for Christ and Hebrews says he never received the fulfillment of the, of the promise in his lifetime. And we, on the other hand, have received the promise, including the fullness of the Spirit. And we are blessed people, aren't we? People that have no ground to boast, though. A people that have come to the one God who is the creator of all without bias. A people who now desire and can walk in Christ's fulfillment of the law and serve God, not for gaining salvation, but out of worship. What about you? Is that why you want to serve God? Out of worship? I hope so. It should be out of an overflow of worship. When you read the law, you should not hear condemnation. You should see, as we've said before, railroad tracks that the train of worship can run down. It's an overflow of worship. Our hope in Christ is what saves. And if you don't have hope there, then you should turn to Christ because He is the only way to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are so thankful for your word. How clear it is, how helpful it is. You tell us in Timothy that it's, it's to instruct us, it's also to correct us. So as we've been instructed this morning, Lord, of how to think rightly about faith alone, we may have been corrected by some ways in which our hearts the hangover from the fall, the hangover of our flesh is still there, might be tempted to boast or think somehow that we're elevated above other people, even though you're the God of all, or, or how the law is unimportant. Thank you that you've corrected us, and I pray now, Lord, that all of our life we live for worship, that no one, when they see us in heaven, would ever be surprised to see us there. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.